Greetings and welcome to episode 45 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is the birth of the Japanese Empire. Here we're finally going to get into some real conquest of new lands that previously belonged to other states that were universally recognized around the world. Okay, um, that's the difference sort of with what we've been dealing with uh, previously when we were talking about places like the Ainu in Hokkaido or this ambiguous situation with the Ryukyus, with Okinawa, um, and we talked about some ideology and all this sort of stuff. Um, now we need to talk about how Japan expands off of its islands into someone else's undisputed territory um, and takes a chunk of it for themselves. Um, and this is also going to bring us to the time in which we're talking about um, a real empire that uh, later on would be retroactively designated as having begun at this point. Um, and that's important because when World War II ends and the empire is dismembered, uh, the victors have to decide uh, how far back do we go to determine what Japan is going to lose, what is, uh, in their eyes, illegitimate, what were illegitimate acquisitions, imperialist acquisitions that Japan had. Um, and they decide to begin it with 1895 and thus the 50-year empire. Um, Hokkaido is not included in this definition, um, and Okinawa eventually will not be included in this definition um, either. All right. Um, so where where are we going to be looking at? We're looking at Northeast Asia. Okay. Uh, pull up a map and see uh, the geography of Japan and whatnot. Um, to the east, a whole lot of water. <laughs> okay. To the south, we've got the Ryukyus, and then beyond the Ryukyus, Taiwan. But also, in addition to that, a whole bunch of water as well. Um, to the west and sort of the northwest, um, when you go north from southwestern Honshu Island, where uh, Choshu, the uh, powerful daimyo of Choshu, used to be located, uh, the Strait of Shimonoseki goes between uh, southwestern tip of Honshu and the island of Kyushu, where the daimyo of Satsuma was. Um, immediately north of those, so sort of northwest, is Korea is Korea. And if you sort of go a little north uh, west of that, or just west of Korea, you've got uh, the approach to Beijing, the capital of the Qing Empire. You have to go through the uh, 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 Bohai Gulf. And as you go through the Bohai Gulf, there's going to be two peninsulas that jut out and sort of frame your entrance to the Bohai Gulf, which is the maritime approach to Beijing. Well, technically, you have to go to Tianjin first, but then you go on to Beijing. All right. Um, now, these two peninsulas in the south are Shandong, that is a province of the Qing Empire. Um, and then the other peninsula that juts down from the north is uh, the uh, known as the Liaodong Peninsula, L-I-A-O. O-D-O-N-G. And the biggest city there is known today as Dalian. Uh, previously in English, it was very often referred to as Port Arthur, and I'll usually interchangeably use those two terms. Um, these are things that are going to become very important, so you kind of have to understand the geography of where exactly Korea is, and then just sort of to the west there, um, what are these two peninsulas that jut out? Because the Liaodong Peninsula and Korea, um, and Manchuria, the huge continental landmass that is that, that Korea is connected to on its northern border, um, and that the Liaodong Peninsula is also connected to, to the north. Um, <clears throat> Manchuria is going to be the site where we're going to see a lot of this conflict. Um, so what we're getting here in the approach to the 1890s, we are getting the convergence of three empires that are competing for territory, and they are all playing for keeps. Well, two empires and one wannabe empire. That's Japan. Okay? Now, Japan, if it wants to expand beyond the Ryukyus and beyond Hokkaido, um, those are the only, that's about as far as they can expand in all directions without finally bumping up against a major other superpower and its territory. Uh, beyond the Ryukyus is Taiwan. That belongs to the Qing Empire. Um, north of Japan, that's Korea. That's its own state. And then obviously all the mainland is spoken for as well, either as a part of Russia or as a part of the Qing Empire. So, how are we going to think of all of this? Uh, Japan, when it expands beyond its immediate environs, uh, the next logical place to expand to get a foothold onto the mainland, East Asian mainland, is Korea. It's Korea. Uh, that's, you know, the most obvious place to expand next. Uh, as I said before in a previous episode, many Japanese intellectuals uh, talked about Korea as a dagger pointed at the heart of Japan. You need to neutralize that dagger by taking it over. Um, now, Japan's interest in, in Northeast Asia, namely Korea, uh, the Liaodong Peninsula, and Manchuria, this sort of area. All right, most of today, Liaodong Peninsula, Manchuria, that's just northeastern China, uh, if you look on a map today. 
Um, Japan's interest in these territories will be different than the sort of interest that the imperialist Western powers, with the exception of Russia, um, have been implementing elsewhere throughout, well, throughout uh, most of East Asia. Okay, the Western empires, except for Russia, Britain, France, the Dutch, the Germans, okay, all these people, um, they mostly just want profit. All right. They wanted territory elsewhere in the world. You know, the French took Indochina, the British took India. Uh, elsewhere in the world, they actually do want territory sometimes. Uh, in, North, in East Asia, and North, uh, particularly Northeast Asia, they're mainly there to make a profit. And I'd throw the Americans into this group by this time as well. Uh, they mainly want to make a profit. And although they make some encroachments into domestic sovereignty with things like extraterritoriality um, and, you know, lower tariffs and the right to trade on very favorable terms and have missionaries and whatnot, not, um, it's still rather limited. They don't really want to take over China and rule China for themselves. That's a massive headache. And we've got big colonial chunks of territory elsewhere in the world that are already a headache enough. Uh, when we come to, to East Asia, we just want to make a profit. Okay, And all these little limited encroachments that we have into your domestic sovereignty that we achieve through the unequal treaties, that's just a means of making money. That favors us and maximizes our ability to get the upper hand in all business dealings. Okay, but you know, north of Southeast Asia, basically East Asia, uh, really no Western European or American power wants to ex uh, exercise actual colonial rule. But Russia, China, the Qing Empire, and Japan are different. For them, Northeast Asia is a zero-sum game. All right, they see it as we're playing for keeps, we're playing for territory, and we're not going to give away any chunk of territory lightly. In fact, the only way that territory is going to change hands from one empire to another is if you beat us in battle and spill our blood. Otherwise, you're not getting it. China, obviously, the long-standing mainland East Asian power. All right, but Northeast Asia, from the perspective of the Qing Empire, from the perspective of the Qing Emperor in Beijing, Northeast Asia, which we think of in English usually with the shorthand term of Manchuria, um, Manchuria was only recently incorporated uh, as an integral part of the Qing Empire. Oh, they had had it for a long time. That's where the Manchu semi-nomadic rulers, uh, the ruling dynasty, there are, are Manchus. Uh, that's where they came from. That's why in English we think of this place as Manchuria, the land of the Manchus. Um, they did originate from Northeast Asia and then invaded the lands to the south, took over the heartland of China, and then set up their empire, which later would include, uh, include Mongolia, Xinjiang, and Tibet. But... They tried to keep Manchuria off-limits to Han migration from the heartland for a very long time. It was illegal. Officially, it was illegal for Han migrants from uh, elsewhere in the Qing Empire to migrate to Manchuria and try to colonize the, the, uh, the, the soil for farmland. Now, some Han migrants did that anyways, uh, but it was officially illegal, and it wasn't a huge flood of migrants. The Manchuria was off-limits. That's the homeland of the Manchus. We're going to preserve it as such. Um, that only changes in the late 19th century, like the 1880s, okay? Uh, right during the time frame when the Japanese Empire is trying to expand. Uh, in fact, the Qing emperors in Beijing decide to finally open the floodgates to Han migration to Manchuria right about this time when they start worrying that Russia and Japan have designs on this land. And they realize we can't keep it as sort of this, you know, largely sparsely populated um, uh, uh, preserve of the Manchu homeland anymore. Um, that's just going to open the door for Russia or Japan to think that they can take over this and that it's empty land. No one lives there. I mean, some people do, but not enough to give it sort of the substance that it's part of China. And so the Manchu emperors in the 1880s said, we need to open the floodgates to Han migration so we can claim Manchuria as a, you know, a substantive part of our empire. Look at all of our migrants who are there. Look at all of the Han who live there. You, you can't say they're not Chinese. This is a part of China. Okay, um, so China, Northeast Asia to them is actually still in an odd sense, even though the Qing Empire has had it for since the beginning for three, four hundred years by this point. Uh, nevertheless, it has only recently been sort of signified <laughs> through deliberate, uh, officially authorized Han migration. 
So Manchuria is sort of a fresh new acquisition in that sense, a sort of a demographic acquisition for the Qing Empire. Russia, where can they expand to? Well, you think, well, doesn't Russia have enough? Come on. Um, yeah, they've got, you know, the great expanse of the northern band of Eurasia. They have much of Central Asia. Um, they have the Caucasus. Uh, they have much of uh, Eastern Europe. Um, and uh, where else can they expand to? Well, Russian traders have been going over into the New World, uh, Alaska, uh, the Pacific Northwest uh, in North America. Um, but they sort of, you know, gave up on that prior to our time period, and that was mostly for profit, and they never really had any large, dense uh, uh, colonizing settlements out in that area, and eventually they're going to sell Alaska to the United States, as everyone knows. Um, there's not really room to expand too much into Central or Western Europe. Um, not really an overseas option. So from the Russian imperial perspective, if they want to expand, their only choice really that's left into a land where you could plausibly say, hey, we could push out the previous owners without too much pushback, um, that's into Northeast Asia. That's south of their holdings in Siberia. All right, the most lucrative and strategic lands that are within the realm of possible acquisition are going to be Northeast Asian lands, namely Korea and Manchuria, which includes the Liaodong Peninsula. Uh, unfortunately, that's exactly what Japan is getting for as well. And then Japan, largely the same situation as Russia. After you have Hokkaido um, and the Ryukyu Archipelago, um, there isn't really anywhere else you can go but without bumping into strong neighbors who say, get out of here, this is ours. And Japan is the latest, most recent, and smallest newcomer of them all. Uh, which unfortunately for Russia and Japan, uh, Russia and China, uh, that may lead to them being underestimated in battle also. So, the way we're, we're going to be looking at this, the first flashpoint is going to be Korea. The second flashpoint is going to be Manchuria. That is the broad trajectory of how the Japanese Empire formally gets started from 1895 to 1910. That's generally our time frame here. Uh, you're going to get the first battle is going to be uh, fought over Korea in 1895 between the Qing Empire and the Japanese. That will lead to the acquisition, not of Korea, uh, counterintuitively, but Taiwan. Um, and so the China will be kicked out. Um, and then you're going to have another battle 10 years later in which Japan finally has to confront Russia. Uh, that will also be generally over Korea and the Liaodong Peninsula in Manchuria. Um, and Japan will win that as well, kick the Russians out. And then Northeast Asia, they finally have room to expand and colonize, uh, having kicked both the Chinese out um, and the Russians out. All right, so that's where we're sort of all going here. Uh, and, you know, it's going to be a battle to decide who's going to uh, uh, control Korea and Manchuria, essentially. All right. Um, so ultimately, all of this competition will be resolved through war. All right. Only J Japan's going to get anything close to home field advantage, however. If there's one thing that Japan might have, it's small, it's the latest newcomer, everyone looks down on it. Uh, one thing they do have is that they're probably the closest to their supply lines. They are uh, fighting as close as they can to a home field battle of all three powers um, that are involved here. Uh, Russia, of course, is going to be fighting far, far away from its metropolitan center, um, and even China. Uh, you know, it's going to be closer, but probably still you'd have to say that uh, China sending their supply lands all the way into Korea, uh, naval battles in that area. Um, it, you know, Japan still, I would say, has somewhat of a home field advantage there as well. All right. Now, Let's talk about the origins of the Sino-Japanese War. Uh, in hindsight, now referred to usually, especially uh, among Chinese scholars, as the first Sino-Japanese War, because World War II is often referred to not necessarily as World War II in Asia, but as the second Sino-Japanese War some 40 years later. All right, the uh, general summary of what we're going to be looking at here, uh, the Qing Empire, the emperors in Beijing, will attempt to take the early initiative in Korea uh, to sort of preemptively make sure that Japan can't get a foothold in Korea, and Japan will seize it back, and ultimately they will uh, resolve who's going to have preeminent influence in Korea um, through warfare. 
Now remember, Korea at this time play, at this time period, um, sort of an ambiguous position, but I wouldn't say as uh, precarious necessarily as the Ryukyus or the Ainu in Hokkaido. Um, most people would, uh, if you asked them, if you know the Westerners when they go to Beijing and they ask what is the status of Korea, um, they would usually get an answer that would say something like, "Well, they're a tributary of uh, the Qing Empire. Uh, they're in a hierarchical, unequal relationship with us, and they acknowledge our superiority." But then sometimes they would also also turn around and say, but it's also an independent country. Um, and so there's a little more sense of an acknowledgement, a widespread acknowledgement that Korea, although it has maintained ambiguous relationships with Korea, uh, with China in the past, um, that it still has uh, more cultural and political and economic autonomy certainly than a place like the Ryukyu Archipelago or the Ainu on Hokkaido would have. Uh, but still, it's not necessarily a fully independent uh, state. Um, its surrounding neighbors still feel as though that they have the right to meddle in Korea's internal affairs um, and uh, sort of turn it into their informal sphere of influence. So, in the 1870s, about the same time after Japan has already had sort of its early attempt to sort of meddle in the uh, uh, affairs of Taiwan, remember there was that shipwreck of Ryukyuan soldiers and uh, 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 Japan tried to claim the Ryukyuan uh, sailors as their own um, and get an indemnity from the Qing Empire. Uh, this is sort of the first alarm bell going off for the emperors in Beijing that Japan uh, now is a new player in the imperial game and we have to watch out for them. They're trying to take lands that historically we've seen within our informal tributary system orbit. Um, so at the same time during the same decade, the 1870s, and this is the first decade of uh, hardcore Meiji reforms after the Meiji Restoration of 1868. Um, um, uh, the Qing Empire takes advantage of various internal soldier mutinies and political coups, you know, just domestic political instability in Korea. Uh, this is the Choson dynasty, been around for many uh, hundreds of years by this point. The Choson dynasty is the domestic power in Korea at this time period. And the Qing Empire decides um, that whenever there's some sort of instability in Korea, we will try to intervene uh, on the pretext that we're helping to stabilize our little brother neighbor. Um, an opportunity finally arrives in 1882. 1882, there is a mutiny of Korean imperial soldiers. So Beijing decides to intervene and sends 3,000 troops and three warships uh, to the Korean peninsula, removes the prince regent of the Choson dynasty to Tianjin, the, town of, the city of Tianjin that's on the approach to Beijing, as a hostage. And then the Qing says, uh, we're going to sponsor the winners of uh, this domestic instability, while some of the losers of this battle flee to Japan. This is a volatile situation now. Either side, both the Qing Empire and uh, the, the Japanese, can concoct a pretext to say we're intervening on behalf of Korea. Uh, the winners are sponsored by Beijing. The losers of this intervention fled the Korean peninsula and were given uh, asylum, refuge, in Tokyo. So the Japanese have some constituents, some Korean constituents who are now loyal to them and say, you know, if you ever want to, we'll be willing to go back um, at, the ba at the head of your army if you want to try to, you know, install us back in power. They're just rival political factions at the Choson Dynasty Imperial Court. Um, and so this sort of uh, uh, creates a volatile decade, about 12 years or so from 1882, that's the year of that uh, uh, mutiny, soldiers' mutiny, to 1894 when the Sino-Japanese War breaks out. This 12-year period. Uh, the Qing Empire is turning Taiwan into a province to sort of better secure its hold over that land. Um, These 12 years see the uh, uh, Beijing very, being very aggressive and strategic in Korea. What they do is the Qing emperors utilize the tools of Western imperialism. They say we need to sort of uh, jettison this tributary Confucian system. Uh, we need to use the tools that the Westerners use. This means we need to set up a permanent foreign consulate. Uh, actually, the first permanent foreign consulate um, of the Qing Empire is going to be the ambassador that they send to Korea. Uh, it's actually end up going to be Yuan Shikai. Uh, Yuan Shikai is going to be one of the first uh, 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 Qing Dynasty ambassadors to Korea. If you don't know that name now, uh, you will know it later on because he will become the first president of the Republic of China in 1912 and will play a, a very important role in later political developments in East Asia and in particular the Japanese Empire. So they set up a permanent foreign consulate, they have resident advisors, and they create multilateral treaties, unequal treaties with Korea that gives benefits to the Qing Empire, but crucially, 
These treaties also are multilateral, not unilateral. It, they are deliberately structured to bring in the other Western powers and to give them the same privileges that the Qing dynasty has managed to get um, in Korea. Other powers will get these privileges as well. What is Beijing doing? Beijing is trying to make sure that other powers stronger than itself have a stake in the new order in Korea so that it's not simply Japan versus China. If anything, if, you know, if anything happens uh, and Japan's displeased, uh, they can't just purely accuse the Chinese of being the bullies in Korea. Uh, it'll also be the British and the French and the Dutch and the Germans and the Americans uh, have all subscribed to the same sort of arrangements in Korea. And if they're profiting from it, this is the thinking in Beijing, if other co major countries are all profiting from the, the arrangement we have in, in Korea, uh, we can just be preeminent power among the other European powers. Uh, but since we all have a stake in this order, Japan's not going to want to upset it. Um, and that'll uh, effectively keep Japan from attaining the upper hand in Korea through these unilateral treaties. They're taking a, 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 a page out of the Western imperialist playbook um, to de deter, disincentivize Japan rocking the boat in Korea. You rock the boat, you're going to have to rock all these other foreign powers as well. However, uh, this is successful for about a decade. Uh, it sort of holds uh, it holds Japan at bay in Korea for about a decade um, until 1894, when Japan finally. Japan obviously doesn't like this situation. They know that the Qing Dynasty is preeminent in Korea, and that's a threat to them. We need to make sure we're the chief power in Korea, not the Qing Dynasty, and we need to make sure that Russia doesn't get an opportunity to come in here and kick everyone else out as well. So, in 1894, Japan gets on a season opportunity to reverse its fortunes in Korea. There is a religious uprising in the Korean countryside that begins to target foreigners foreign missionaries and whatnot who are living on the Korean peninsula. The Choson Dynasty Court, the Korean court, can't suppress the extent of this religious rebellion in the countryside on its own, so it asks for help. Specifically, it asks Beijing. It says, can you send some Qing Dynasty troops onto the Korean peninsula to help us suppress this rebellion, which is going to cause trouble because they're killing foreigners, and that's not going to turn out well for us. Beijing agrees to send some troops to suppress the religious uprising in the countryside. But Japan then says, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the way this is going to go. We also are a signatory to those multilateral treaties that Beijing was creating back in the 1880s as a means to sort of, uh, 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 you know, balance out Japanese influence and make sure that we had to sort of deal with all the other powers who had uh, a profitable stake in Korea. So we're a signatory to the 1885 multilateral treaty that the Qing dynasty arranged that says we have the same right to do in Korea as any other country does. Here we're going to see China's multilateral treaty game being turned back against itself by Japan. And say we get the we, we are have the right to protect quote unquote protect Korea as well. See both sides are saying, oh, I'm going to protect Korea. No, I'm going to protect Korea. <laughs> and, and, and the form of this protection is send in several thousand troops to kill people on Korea, <laughs> right? Uh, but Japan is you know desperate to say no 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 we're on that multilateral treaty that you tried so hard to get everyone on, and we have the right, the privilege of protecting Korea just like you do. Well, what's going to happen here? Very predictable. You have multiple armies on the same plot of land. Uh, oh, yes, they, they managed to easily suppress the, the rebellion in the countryside. And then neither side decide, uh, is willing to withdraw their troops from the Korean Peninsula. That is the catalyst for the first Sino-Japanese War in 1895. Never a good situation when you have soldiers uh, from two different countries uh, in the exact same area and they both want to attain preeminent influence in that land. Uh, most likely, uh, there's going to be a war breaking out sooner or later. Uh, Sino-Japanese War, 1894 to 1895, fought on land on the Korean Peninsula and on water. Uh, the navies also uh, uh, face off against each other at the time. And at this time, most people thought that the Qing Empire had been successfully modernizing for a couple decades by this point. They had their own shipyards, their own industrial modernization munition shipyards, uh, munitions uh, factories and whatnot. Um, and they thought, you know, the, the Qing Empire is going to be able to um, silence the Japanese and that'll be the end of Japanese uh, expansion. And to everyone's great shock, uh, Japan wins. They destroy the Qing Navy. Um, everyone is stunned, including China. 
And again, it's going to be a further setback for the Chinese. Um, you know, all their investments in their navy have now gone up in flames. They have to start from scratch. Not only that, but then you lose things when you lose a battle as well. After Japan attains its victory in Korea, there is a domestic clamor among Japanese diplomats and educated elites for new territorial gains and treaties. Now, the initial expectations going into this battle with the Qing Empire, um, there wasn't a whole lot of expectation that uh, we would get territorial acquisitions after this war was over. Uh, sort of just wanted to neutralize Qing influence in Korea, and then we'll start to gradually be the preeminent power there. Um, we want to get those Qing troops out of Korea. But no one was actually thinking that this might lead to um, you know, taking over Korea, which actually doesn't happen yet, uh, or any other plot of land. However, once they win, this unexpected victory produces a domestic momentum, a thirst for a real empire. Well, look what we did. We actually did beat them, and we destroyed their entire navy. The Westerners are shocked. We, 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 we should sort of ride this wave and take what we can get. Leads to the first inkling that Japan could actually have a mainland East Asia empire and perhaps a leading role in Asia. Maybe we can even replace China's long-standing role for 3,000 years as the chief power in all of Asia. The British minister who was resident in Tokyo at the time period said, quote, nothing less than the conquest and absorption by Japan of the entire Chinese empire is now freely spoken of among the people he was talking to in Tokyo. The only check on Japan here are the European powers. Right. What will they allow? Because that's how all negotiations happen. Uh, sometimes you might be able to, you know, if it was just one-to-one, -one, the more powerful party could actually dictate really humiliating terms and take all kinds of stuff from the losing party. I mean, you lost. What are you going to be able to do? You're going to go back to war again and just be defeated again? Um, oftentimes, the way these negotiations work out is that there are other great powers in the vicinity, and they actually also sort of mold and dictate the terms of what's going to happen to make sure that the uh, balance of power isn't too upset by the spoils of war. So there are, three there are three major demands that Japan puts forth during the uh, uh, negotiations in the lead-up to the Treaty of Shimonoseki in 1895. The Japanese army says, we want the Liaodong Peninsula and Port Arthur, uh, Dalian, uh, the city that's at the southern tip of uh, uh, the Liaodong Peninsula. Uh, we, we, we want these, this city and this uh, peninsula as our footholds on Northeast Asia, our mainland footholds. Right, they're not actually asking for Korea. Uh, because they didn't defeat Korea, uh, they defeated the Qing Empire, and so they want em uh, land and a city from the Qing Empire. Remember, Liaodong, the city of Dalian, very strategically important. That's the northern peninsula uh, that juts out from the north to the south as you approach the Bohai Gulf to get to Beijing. Um, it's going to be, in the future, it's going to be the center of Japanese power in Northeast Asia. So they want Liaodong and Port Arthur as mainland footholds. That's the army's demand. The finance ministry in Japan says we need an indemnity to pay our war expenses. That was a very expensive war. Let's get some money from the Qing Empire. The Japanese Navy says, how about Taiwan? Uh, it's a very strategically located. It's the next big island uh, after the Ryukyus, which we have now. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have Taiwan, sort of a continuous uh, crescent from Japan all the way down to Taiwan? Uh, that would protect shipping routes and give us a great platform, a, a springboard to Southeast Asia. Now, the Qing dynasty resists giving away Taiwan the most. To them, they say, quote, to relinquish Chinese uh, sovereignty over this area would awaken in the Chinese people a spirit of hostility and revenge. And they say it would make further Sino-Japanese cooperation impossible and weaken us both so that we're vulnerable to the West. Our true enemy is the West, right? It's not each other. Unfortunately for the Qing dynasty, Beijing's objections carry the least weight among any of the foreign states involved. They're all going to look after their own interests. So uh, Beijing, when you lose a war, you don't get to have the uh, loudest voice in determining uh, the fallout from that war. Japan ultimately concludes, when it sees the reaction among the Western powers to their three demands, they conclude that Taiwan will be upsetting to everyone. No one's going to really like Taiwan uh, being lost to the Japanese, but not to the point of intervention. All right. Uh, none of the other states, none of the other European empires uh, are going to see Taiwan uh, being ceded to the Japanese as a direct threat to their other colonies. 
and they calculate correctly that Taiwan is within the realm of the possible of what we can get without the other great powers intervening um, and uh, saying, no, 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 you're not going to get this. That's too much. The same cannot be said of the army's demand to get the Liaodong Peninsula and the city of Port Arthur slash Dalian. This is known as the triple intervention in history textbooks. Russia, France, and Germany all lodge a formal protest over the Qing willingness to cede the Liaodong Peninsula. I've always found this odd that the Qing uh, were okay with giving in to the demand to give away the Liaodong Peninsula, which is so close to Beijing, uh, but they were really upset about giving away Taiwan, which is actually really far in the south. Uh, anyways, the, the Qing agreed to the, the Liaodong uh, session, and uh, Russia, France, and Germany all lodge a formal protest. Germany is in this. They care. Because they have the Shandong Peninsula, or they have one uh, some uh, railroad rights and individual treaty port rights in some of the cities like Qingdao on the Shandong Peninsula. The Shandong Peninsula is the peninsula that juts from south to north on the southern side of the approach into the Bohai Gulf. All right, sort of the other side of the Liaodong Peninsula is the Shandong Peninsula. Uh, so Germany uh, also has a, a big interest in making sure that Liaodong uh, does not go to the Japanese. The Russians have a great interest because they have they want to get their influence all throughout Northeast Asia as well. Um, and France, I don't know why France is in there. <laughs> Someone look it up. I don't know why France cares so much about what happens to the Liaodong Peninsula. Um, anyways, these three countries lodge a formal protest and they say this is going to threaten Beijing and make the independence of Korea totally illusory. Because Liaodong Peninsula is right next to Korea as well, at least the northern part of Korea. Um, and what they say is, we're acting in Beijing's best interest. Beijing doesn't know what it's doing. You cannot give away the Liaodong Peninsula. Russia leads the pack. They're actually the most vociferous of the three countries that lodge a formal protest, which makes Japan realize for the first time, we thought our chief enemy was the Qing Empire. We thought that was going to be our chief rival. But we, victory was surprisingly easy over them. Now we realize, after the triple intervention, that our ambitions in Northeast Asia cannot be realized until the Russians are dealt with. It's actually the Russians who are going to be our chief competitor in this zero-sum game of attaining territory in Northeast Asia. So the Sino-Japanese War from 1894 to 1895, that only kicked out China out of Northeast Asia. Not literally. But from the, per the perspective of great power politics, uh, China is sort of neutralized as an aggressive threat to be reckoned with in Northeast Asia. That's the way we should phrase it. Uh, they haven't actually lost Northeast Asia, except for Korea. Most of Northeast Asia is still their territory, technically. Uh, but they've lost their ability to be seen as an aggressive threat that has to be reckoned with in Northeast Asia. That's Japan and Russia now. So, other than Taiwan and some cash, the indemnity... The only other thing Japan can really strive for as part of these deals is uh, economic concessions in China and a sphere of influence in Korea, a very vague, ambiguous, informal term, but nevertheless one that they're happy to get on paper, that we have a sphere of influence in Korea and everyone recognizes this. And then they get some uh, economic concessions in China as well. It's at this point in 1895 that Japan attains the what's called the most favored nation status, um, in, in, in the Qing Empire, that means tax-free access to the interior of China, uh, access on all riverine routes, on all the major rivers, the right to build their own factories, which allows you to saturate the market with manufactured goods from abroad that oftentimes are cheaper than local handicraft industries, um, gives you a profit, a nice profit, but devastates local uh, economies, um, and seven new treaty ports throughout China. What Japan basically gets within China is a European-style treaty, unequal treaty, an entry into the club of Western imperial powers in East Asia. This is a very prestigious club. Um, all the more prestigious because Japan is the first non-Western state to get Western-style imperial concessions um, in China or anywhere else in the world. Um, this is the first time it's happened. This means a lot. The symbolism is huge. Asians are being treated as a legitimate member of the club of Western imperialist powers as it relates to China, at least. They're the first non-Western state to obtain unequal and non-reciprocal privileges in China. And all this is enshrined in the Treaty of Shimonoseki. My, how the symbolism of that name, Shimonoseki, has changed 
um, over the past uh, 30 years or so from back on our first episode. Well, the first episode, we talked about the Japan. I think it was episode 42 or 43, uh, how Japan overtook China, in which Shimonoseki, when we encountered the Straits of Shimonoseki at that time, it was a symbol of the decentralized nature of the Tokugawa state. Remember that? Uh, the uh, 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 the daimyo of Choshu, uh, which sort of straddles the, the uh, Strait of, Sh- of Shimonoseki, um, refused to allow the British to uh, send their ships through the Straits of Shimonoseki, and that led to the British bombarding Choshu, um, and this was all sort of a symbolism of how the uh, shogun in Edo did not have full control over his daimyo, and that was sort of uh, this house of cards that could all collapse and led to the foreigners treating Japan differently than they treated the centralized uh, Qing Empire, which was so much easier to exploit. Uh, Now, Shimonoseki is a symbol of a unified, centralized Japanese empire. In 30 years, the symbolism of Shimonoseki has changed big time. <laughs> All right. Um, now, in Korea, Japan settles for a acknowledged sphere of influence after Russia objects to the idea of a formal protectorate. They said we want to have a, we want Korea to be our protectorate, and Russia says, "Well, hold up there, buddy. Uh, you didn't beat Korea, and you didn't beat us." You beat the Chinese. You beat the Qing Empire. Uh, so you're not getting any sort of formal protectorate in Korea. Dream on. And Japan reluctantly is forced by Russia to withdraw its troops from the Korean Peninsula um, and settle for a very vague, informal, toothless sphere of influence on paper. Uh, But still, that's something. And after this, Japan takes a, a page from the Western imperialist playbook once more and forces the Choson court, all right, you're not going to be our protectorate, um, but you are uh, uh, within our sphere of influence, everyone acknowledges that, and they apply pressure to the Choson court to accept a large Japanese financial loan uh, with major strings attached. Uh, they say what we're doing is the same thing that the British did in Egypt. They use that uh, uh, that explicit analogy. They said Egypt Uh, gives loans, uh, sorry, (laughs) it's definitely not reversed. Uh, British gives a huge loan to Egypt to help build the Suez Canal or things like this. Modernization projects are expensive um, and the uh, unfortunate less advanced countries of the world need loans from the more powerful wealthy countries in order to uh, modernize. Um, And that's what we're doing for Korea. We're just like the British now. We're an advanced, you know, member of the Western Imperialist Club. Uh, So we're going to extend a loan uh, to the Korean court to enable the modernization, to build railroads and this sort of stuff, which is, you know, ostensibly an altruistic, benevolent thing that we're doing. However, just like with Britain and the Suez Canal or any loan that's ever given anywhere in the history of the world, there's always interest. And the interest is not necessarily just uh, uh, financial interest. The payback of the Japanese loan is secured on the tax revenues of three southern Korean prefectures. Japanese officials will be stationed in Korea to supervise repayment. Uh, what the loan is, it is a, it, it's a strategic way of sinking your tender hook, sinking your talons into Korea, um, knowing that Korea will likely not be able to pay this back or they will default or it will be delayed and that will be your pretext to further meddle in domestic politics until you're so far are uh, immersed in what's going on domestically um, that you essentially control the fate of the country. It's a standard imperialist uh, play that you see throughout the world. Once again, Japan is using tactics from the Western imperialist powers, and they're the first non-Western power to be using these sort of tactics. But they know to truly obtain a foothold on the mainland, uh, we need to confront Russia. Because Russia uh, uh, made sure that uh, the Qing dynasty did not give us the Liaodong Peninsula, which Beijing was willing to give us. And it was only Russia that uh, uh, tanked that deal. And uh, we know now that Russia is our chief enemy. So let's deal with Russia. All right. The Treaty of Shimonoseki in 1895 prompts what's known in uh, historical textbooks as a scramble for concessions in China. Japan's victory shocked everyone. China is much weaker than we thought, everyone said, if it cannot defeat an upstart like Japan. There was a widespread belief among all the major powers who had colonial interest in East Asia now that China, the Qing Empire, will come apart. 
All right, and uh, it's going to have to be carved up like a melon. That was the phrase in Chinese from sort of the perspective of the fear that this might happen. Uh, they're going to carve us up like a melon now because uh, they're all afraid that someone else is going to get to the melon first. If China falls apart, uh, everyone's going to scramble for their own spheres of influence and set up their own independent secessionist states and collaborationist governance and whatnot. Um, that's a big danger. And that's precisely what happens after 1895, the scramble for concessions. Each major foreign power gains new rights and concessions that are unique to their respective spheres of influence in the Qing Empire. The French get all kinds of new concessions in the far southwest, which is north of their holdings in Indochina, uh, places like the province of Yunnan. Uh, they'll get rights, you know, to sort of uh, uh, build um, transportation networks and whatnot. That's another way of sinking your claws into a foreign power. Uh, the Germans will uh, get... Uh, new concessions in Shandong Peninsula. That's where they have the uh, uh, town of Qingdao, where they're going to run their Qingdao Brewery, you know, famous Qingdao beer today. Um, and the British will uh, get new, new concessions in their chief area of influence in the south, in the, along the Yangtze River Basin. But it is the Russian concessions, the new Russian concessions that, ha that result after 1895 in Manchuria, in northeastern China, that alarm Japan the most. Okay, Russia got the right to have a lease to build an east-west railroad across Manchuria, the northeastern part of the Qing Empire. It's going to be known as the China Eastern Railway. Because the Russians, remember, they have a town of Vladivostok. Vladivostok, right to the east, right next to the border of what is today North Korea. Okay, it's a frost-free harbor. Uh, this was as far as you could go to the east and still be able to have a frost-free harbor on the eastern end of Eurasia. Uh, the, the Vladivostok, uh, that's the major Russian town in Northeast Asia. Um, and it's very cumbersome to get there without going through Chinese territory, without going through the Qing Empire. If you go around Manchuria, if the Qing Dynasty won't let you build a railroad through its, its territory, um, then you have to take the Trans-Siberian Railroad all the way around the rooster head of the Qing Empire um, and then go south around Manchuria all the way to Korea. It's a very roundabout way of getting to Vladivostok. And so as part of the new concessions, a scramble for concessions in the late 1890s, uh, Russia gets Beijing to agree to allow it to build a railroad, the China Eastern Railway, that cuts right across Manchuria in a beeline for Vladivostok. They also get the right to build a spur line south from the new China Eastern Railway uh, to link up to Liaodong, Port Arthur. This railway will become known as the South Manchurian Railway. Get used to that name because you're going to hear that a lot more in the future. Remember, after the Triple Intervention, this is how, you know, how obvious self-centered geopolitics are. Um, Russia, as thanks to, the, to Beijing for keeping the Japanese out of the Liaodong Peninsula, took it for itself. <laughs> they put pressure on the Qing court to give Liaodong to them. We'll protect Liaodong. All right, you're not able to protect Liaodong. Don't just give it to the Japanese. We'll protect it on your behalf. How hypocritical is that? I mean, yeah, you can really see the Japanese, their blood's boiling at this point, right? And they can, we had the Liaodong Peninsula. And the Russians, as thanks for kicking us out of it, they get it? What insane logic drives this decision? And now they have a China Eastern Railway across Manchuria and a spur line south from that to give them easy access to Dalian and the Liaodong Peninsula. Screw that, man. Yeah, there's a lot of anger in Tokyo <laughs> after the fallout of this. We have unresolved business with Russia. Now, how do we get to the next war? How do you kick Russia out? Well, here's the end of this story. Japanese fears of what Russia is doing, uh, you know, how is it that we won the war and Russia is now actually increasing their influence in Northeast Asia? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, their fears of the Russian uh, encroachment uh, are compounded by the fallout of another war, uh, the Boxer War. Uh, this is not a direct war, one-on-one, -on -one, Japan versus China or China versus Russia. Uh, the Boxer War uh, occurs in 1901. 
and it's preceded by the Boxer Uprising. Boxer Uprising, in brief, is uh, poor peasants in rural Shandong, the Shandong Peninsula, uh, start, uh, you know, after starvation, drought, these sort of things. You have a group of peasants who believe that uh, by certain martial arts techniques and following charismatic spiritual leaders, that they uh, can practice a form of martial arts um, and rituals that will make them impervious to bullets. Bullets will bounce off them, and they'll be invincible, and they start killing uh, German missionaries in the Shandong countryside, and then they start marching towards Beijing, and as they march to Beijing, uh, em em the Empress Dowager uh, Cixi, uh, who's the main um, power holder in China at this time period, she decides, this is our opportunity. The Chinese people have risen up against the foreigners. Let's declare war on the foreigners, and we can use the peasants, these uh, boxers, uh, to be our vanguard. Big mistake. Uh, she declares war on all the <laughs> foreign powers. Uh, not her shining moment in uh, uh, great power politics. Um, this leads to all the foreign powers predictably declaring war on the Qing Empire. Uh, first, the foreign legations, the foreign consulates, uh, embassies in Beijing are laid to uh, siege to uh, by the boxers, by the Qing armies. Uh, many foreigners are killed. Uh, a few, uh, uh, one or two ambassadors, I think, are also killed as well in all of this. Um, this isn't going to go over well. You know this is not going to end well. Uh, eight nations, eight foreign empires, including the Japanese, because they're a part of all this now, right? They're a member of the club. They get to do the same thing any of the Western powers do. They declare war on the Qing Empire, and they invade Beijing to lift the siege on the foreign legations. They kill the boxers, who are not impervious to, to uh, bullets, obviously. They kill them quite easily. Uh, rural peasants aren't going to be much of a match for modern Western munitions and soldiers. Um, and the Qing court actually has to flee inland to the city of Xi'an for a while before they can come back. And then they have to do humiliating concessions sessions, uh, massive financial indemnities, all kinds of stuff. Now, what we care about specifically is what Russia got after the fallout of the Boxer War in 1901, when the Qing Dynasty loses again. Russia gets, in addition to other concessions and, you know, uh, Boxer War indemnity funds that have to be paid out, uh, you know, to account for the loss of uh, ambassadors who were killed and foreign citizens and all this sort of stuff. Russia got the right to station its own soldiers throughout Manchuria as, quote-unquote, protection once more. Okay, uh, Russia now has the right to station a large number of troops in Northeast Asia. Japan, too, to protect your interest. If you have citizens from your country living here, you're allowed to have soldiers here now to protect them in case another boxer war occurs and these uh, you know crazy wackos in the Qing court declare war on all of us again when the next rural peasant insurrection occurs. Japan and Russia try to negotiate the withdrawal of troops in Northeast Asia um, and recognize some sort of a clear divide between Russian and Japanese spheres of influence in Northeast Asia, and negotiations break down, and that leads to the 1904 Russo-Japanese War. Isn't this like the, the Sino-Japanese War in Korea, uh, part two? But this time it's over uh, uh, Manchuria. It's the exact same thing. Two foreign countries have troops stationed in the exact same plot of land. They try to uh, get the other one out of there. Neither is willing to leave, and they end up fighting each other. It's the exact same thing, but instead of China, it's Russia this time. Now again, Japan wins. And if the, if the victory over Japan, over China, was shocking, the victory over Russia is an earthquake. People around the world, even though, even though Russia is fighting halfway around the world, I mean, they do have... The, uh, uh, they don't have a home field advantage here. That, that's Japan. They're fighting really far away on their supply lines. Nevertheless, these are white people who lost. Are you kidding me? To Asians? Holy shit. This wakes up everyone. And after Japan wins, they get what Russia forced them to give up in 1895. They say, we're going right back to 1895 and we're getting what we wanted. Japan, uh, Russia has to concede Japan's, quote, absolute right of freedom to act in Korea. And the sphere of, sphere of influence crap. We want our protectorate. <laughs> All right, much more formal. With no other countries involved. You get a protectorate over Korea. The transfer of the lease over the Liaodong Peninsula, the 99-year lease over the Liaodong Peninsula, sort of like what Britain, uh, Britain has with Hong Kong. And we're going to take over that railway spur south of, of uh, the city of Harbin. Harbin, a Russian-founded major city in northern Manchuria. Uh, they say south of Harbin, that South Manchurian railway that you guys started, we're going to start taking over that. Uh, because it leads to Liaodong, which we now got. Um, that all goes to Dalian, Port Arthur. Um, so that's ours now as well.
And if you don't want to pay us an indemnity, if you don't want to pay us for the cost of war, well, we'll be happy to take more territory. What territory do they ask for? They ask for the southern half of Sahalin Island, um, which they will, re which the Japanese will rename Karafuto. Uh, remember those four Japanese islands? We naturalize it today as, oh, that's you know the natural boundaries of the Japanese people, the Japanese state. Uh, uh. There's no such thing as natural boundaries. It's just conquest or migration that's later naturalized through war and uh, treaty and documents. Um, yeah, starting now in 1905, Japan for the next 40 years will have the southern half of Sahalin. Um, Sahalin Island is that long, north-south, narrow, elongated island. Uh, it's the next island north of Hokkaido. Um, and Japanese settlers will go to this island, the southern half of it, the northern half still belongs to Russia, and they rename it Karafuto. Now, we'll finish our story with the annexation of Korea. Uh, 1905, Japan's got a protectorate over Korea. Not bad, but formally, uh, Korea is still independent. It just everyone acknowledges that Japan's your chief protector and no other countries can do anything in Korea without Japan's acknowledgement. But technically, Korea is still an independent country. That's not going to last much longer. Uh, Russia's unable to object after losing the war, just like China was unable to object to anything after they lost the war in 1895, unless Russia came to their defense. Now, Russia's lost as well. Who's going to come to Russia's defense? No one. You finally kicked out the other two zero-sum competitors in Northeast Asia. Japan now has a free hand in Korea and the southern half of Manchuria. The northern half of Manchuria is still a Russian sphere of influence with their China Eastern Railway. Japanese, uh, 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 Japanese advisors will begin to flood Korea. They will implement sweeping proposals involving various uh, elements of control of the Korean government, of Korean finances, Korean mining uh, uh, enterprises, Korean fisheries, Korean foreign relations, all backed by a resident general official who has autocratic powers. But... As I said, the fiction of Korean sovereignty is still maintained. Now, unsurprisingly, many Koreans are quite unhappy with the new situation. And in 1907, just two years after the establishment of the Japanese quote-unquote protectorate, a Korean delegation sneaks its way to The Hague in Europe and asks the international community formally to support the real independence of Korea. Japan's response to this, well, they're not going to take kindly to that. They force the, Korean, the Choson emperor to resign in favor of his more pliable son. They forcibly disband the Korean army, and they replace Japanese advisors with officials. We're not like just informal advisors, now Japanese officials, and they start to censor the Korean media. Anything that is, quote, injurious to public order or good morals will now be censored. A nice catch-all ambiguous phrase to interpret it however you want. Uh, this is injurious to good morals or public order, not going to appear in the news anymore. Now, disbanding an army of a country you've occupied is never a good move. The United States learned that much to its chagrin in Iraq. Uh, you don't uh, disband the army without a plan to employ those former soldiers. Uh, same thing happens in Korea. You disband the Korean army. This leads to frequent attacks on Japanese civilians. Japan, this is a, sort of creates a vicious cycle in which Japanese civilians are, and officials are getting targeted by disbanded Korean uh, soldiers and other people who are just sympathized with them. Um, and then you have retaliations from the Japanese, which lead to more retaliations from the Koreans. That's a very vicious cycle. Uh, Japanese leaders now admit we need to totally annex Korea entirely and deprive it of all independence once a suitable pretext presents itself. Behind the scenes, this is how they're talking now. That suitable pretext arrives in October 1909, four years after they had uh, established their protectorate. Uh, what happens is the assassination of the just-resigned resident general Ito Hirobumi during a visit to the town of Harbin in Manchuria in October 1909. He is assassinated uh, by a uh, Korean nationalist. Japan cracks down again. And they find Korean officials who are willing to petition Japan for a, quote, merger to protect Korea. Korea is in need of protection. This sort of violence can't stand. It's going to lead to, you know, uh, the collapse of Korean society. Um, and you're, you're always able to, you know, if you're an occupying power, you can always find some domestic officials who are willing uh, to work with you and to make it look like Japan is not imposing its unilateral will on Korea. They, uh, you know, put pressure on some Korean officials to give a petition to Japan. So it makes it look like the Korean people want this. And Japan can say, uh, you know, sort of with a straight face to the rest of the world, oh, we didn't come into Korea because we want Korea. The Koreans invited us in to establish order. They realized that the present state of affairs can't keep going on. So with this petition, in 1910, Korea is formally annexed. Only Russia and China are willing to object, but both have already been defeated in war. So what? who cares what they say? 
Certainly not Japan. Meanwhile, Japan consolidates its newly acquired position in Manchuria. In 1905, it gets the transfer after the war. It gets the transfer of the Russian lease on the Liaodong Peninsula, acquires Port Arthur slash Dalian, and the right to operate that railway all the way north to Harbin, the South Manchurian Railway. Now, this region... Get used to a new term I want to introduce here. This region that sort of straddles the South Manchuria Railway uh, south of Harbin all the way into the Liaodong Peninsula and to Port Arthur. Um, that region will be referred to in English as uh, the Kwantung region. And the Japanese soldiers who will be stationed to protect this railway and the uh, cities and uh, railway stations and government offices that will spring up on either side of like a buffer zone of that railway, that army will become known in English as the Kwantung Army. Kwantung, K-W-A-N-T-U-N-G. Uh, the orthography of this name is kind of strange. Uh, what it is, is it is a, um, a Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese term for the general region. The Chinese pronunciation is Guangdong, east of the pass. East of the pass. Uh, Guangdong, and then the Japanese pronunciation of that is the Kanto, uh, Kanto region. Uh, Guangdong, Kanto. Um, and then when you add the word for army, it's Kanto-gun. Uh, so what you end up getting here is Kanto ends up becoming the Kwantung uh, region. It's this weird hybrid in English. Regardless, uh, that's what we have to work with. If you look in a history textbook or online or whatnot, you're always going to see it referred to as the Guangdong region or the Kwantung army. And of course, the pretext of the Kwantung army's presence um, in Manchuria is that the army is there to protect the Japanese treaty ports, uh, cities like Dalian, and uh, to protect the Japanese citizens and their enterprises, businesses, towns that spring up all along the buffer zone uh, that is on either side of the South Manchurian Railway. All right. In reality, of course, it's going to be easy to manufacture excuses that allow the Guangdong army the right to intervene in local affairs, and intervene they absolutely will. Uh, fast forward 30 years to 1931-1932, that's how you're going to get the creation of the state, the puppet state of Manchukuo. It's going to be the Guangdong army manufacturing an incident and then using that incident as a pretext to intervene, uh, uh, drive out the Chinese armies and set up their own puppet state. So Kwantung, this region, will soon become another colonial holding, just like Korea. All right, so it's not they just haven't uh, acquired Taiwan and Korea. Uh, Kwantung is also seen as a coherent colonial holding, although it's it's not as easy as it's not as graspable a concept for us. Uh, Korea is easy to uh, to grasp. Taiwan's easy to grasp. Really well defined uh, uh, territories. Uh, Kwantung isn't really the same. It sort of straddles a railway line and it's connected to a peninsula. Uh, but nevertheless, it is, it's also probably the most lucrative of all of the lands that uh, Japan's going to have is, is Kwantung. Uh, far more profitable than Taiwan or Korea are ever going to be. All right. Kwantung will have a Japanese uh, governor. It'll have settlers, Japanese merchants, Japanese officials, Japanese engineers. Uh, oftentimes in my classes, many of the readings that I assign for this uh, time period and for this place are by Japanese settlers who went to uh, live in the Kwantung region and then left memoirs or short stories about uh, life there. Or other people from other parts of the Japanese empire, like Taiwanese, who would seek opportunities in uh, the Japanese empire and go to Kwantung from Taiwan um, and go to Japanese schools in order to learn various skills and whatnot. Now again, Japan will maintain the fiction of, of Chinese sovereignty in Kwantung, sort of like it maintained the fiction of Korean sovereignty in 1905 with the protectorate. It said, we're just looking after our own nationals, our own citizens, and our own economic investments. We haven't actually taken this territory. Liaodong is taken on a lease. On a lease. Uh, the fiction is that one day in the distant future, when we're all dead, <laughs> we'll give this back to you. Once China has advanced enough and they're on par with Japan, they're you know, civilized and have civilized Western-style courts and they're as, modern, as modernized as we've become, then we'll leave. All right? And we can trust the Chinese to safeguard our interest. Uh, that's the fiction upon which all this stuff sort of rests. In reality, the Chinese officials who still exist in Kwantung, there's still Chinese officials in huge Chinese rural communities and cities and whatnot. Uh, the Chinese population didn't disappear. The local Chinese officials didn't disappear. Um, they operate everywhere with the knowledge that Japan could intervene in this area throughout Manchuria at any time. So can the Russians in the northern half of Manchuria. So the final portrait of all of this that we're going to leave with today is that by 1910, from 1895 to 1910, 
Japan has two mainland footholds and one shiny new island. Korea, Kwantung, and Taiwan. All attained through war. Now we've got a bona fide empire conquered by war. The Russians are confined to northern Manchuria now. Previously, they had designs on all of Manchuria, the Liaodong Peninsula, and Korea, uh, and all of Sahalin Island. Now they've been pushed to the northern half of Sahalin. They've been pushed out of Korea. They've been pushed out of the Liaodong Peninsula, and they've been pushed out of southern Manchuria. You could say the same thing for the Chinese, with the exception of Sahalin as well. Okay, Japan is largely in the southern part of Manchuria. And that stalemate between the Japanese and the Russians, dividing the northern and southern ha uh, spheres of Manchuria, will continue until the establishment of Manchukuo in 1932. The next major, develop, uh, next major political developments that are going to affect everything, uh, looking ahead, not to the next episode, because we're going to uh, change course here for a little bit, but an ep uh, two, or, two or three episodes later, um, next major political developments that are going to change what's going on here in China and allow the J Japanese to sort of encroach further. Uh, one, the 1911 Chinese Revolution will introduce chronic domestic instability to the status quo in China, and all powers will have to respond to the collapse of a central government and the rise of the warlord era in China. Two, 1914, uh, in concert with sort of the deterioration of the Chinese central state, um, World War I will limit the ability of European powers to check Japanese ambitions in China. Okay, they failed to check Japanese ambitions in Northeast Asia, uh, but they have checked Japanese ambitions in mainland heartland China. Uh, World War I will make it very hard for them to do that as well. However, next time, we're going to take a little break from great power politics. You know, too much of these uh, bigwigs um, and blood and all this sort of stuff and wars in one sitting isn't good for your health. Instead, we're going to step back and take a microscope to Taiwan, Korea, and the early Japanese empire in general and see just what the Japanese intended to do there, what their methods were, what their guiding colonial vision for this new empire was going to be. Um, I hope you'll join me for the Early Japanese rule in Taiwan and Korea, in episode 46 of Beyond Huaxia.